Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. We've got four threats looming right now. They're polarization, conflict over who belongs as a member of the political community, rising and high economic inequality, and then finally strong executive power that's become increasingly centralized. Hello and welcome to Desert Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm speaking to you here a couple days after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which has put American politics into crisis. There is no world in which Ginsburg's passing, she's an amazing moral force, a pioneer, um, a brilliant, brilliant jurist, there's no world in which her passing wouldn't be an incalculable loss. But there were many worlds where it wouldn't have been a political crisis. And that's the context for this episode. We are now in a political crisis. It is very possible that the Supreme Court is going to lose legitimacy in the eyes of one of the two political coalitions, and by the way, the bigger political coalition. It is very possible, um, and Donald Trump and Ted Cruz have both said this explicitly, they've said that part of the urgency of replacing Ginsburg is putting a ninth justice on the court in case the election goes to the court. Trump has been very clear he's going to contest an election that he loses. And you can imagine a Trump appointee on the court being the deciding vote in that challenge. And God knows what happens after that. But you don't need to come to the show to hear things are bad, um, although we do talk about that. I actually want to make another point here, which is that we don't know how this story ends. And it isn't clear to me that the confrontations we're going through right now are just crisis. They may also be an opportunity, a moment, a possibility for renewal, democratic renewal small d democratic renewal. I've been talking to democratic senators over the past week, and I am struck by what they are considering, struck by things they are considering right now that they weren't considering before, things I think are a good idea, necessary for the country, like getting rid of the filibuster, statehood for DC and Puerto Rico. Um, but they, the ones I'm speaking to anyway, always thought were beyond the pale. And the reason is always the same, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell. McConnell has not allowed Democrats to sit with the idea that there's some answer here that simply means or lets them permit the system to work in the way it has been. McConnell is forcing their hand. He's not giving them anything to hide behind. Uh, He is going to run the Senate such that if you have the power, you use it. And then he is going to challenge them to do the same. And many of them are hearing that challenge and beginning, beginning to answer it. And maybe that's necessary. Maybe you needed a figure like McConnell in a country that has been backsliding in terms of its quality and fundamentals as a democracy for some time. Maybe you needed a figure like McConnell who does not play around with the rhetoric and dreamy ideas of the American political system and instead just speaks in terms of power, votes, rules, what you can do, what you should do, what you will do. Maybe you needed a figure like him to force this confrontation. Doesn't mean this will go well. 
Again, we are in dangerous waters. What I'm laying out here is a possibility, not a prediction. But I've thought for some time the fundamental collision in America, the fundamental tension is, are we going to be a multi-ethnic democracy or not? Are we going to be a multi-ethnic democracy or faced with that prospect is the party that represents a coalition that was a majority and is now losing that majority status, a minoritarian coalition? Will they take power, change the rules, change the norms, make self-reinforcing decisions such that they hold power not by winning over the people, they hold power by making it so fewer of the people's votes actually count. And at least having that confrontation openly and seriously where people admit that is what is going on, maybe there's some progress in that. That's a bit of a long intro, but it is, it is an important setup, I think, for today's conversation with Suzanne Mettler. Suzanne is a political scientist at Cornell. I fought her work for a very long time. She does amazing research on the feedback loops between the government the public and policymaking. She looks very closely at how different structures of policies, visible and invisible, submerged and non-submerged, how they change the way people feel about government, change the way people participate in government. But her most recent book with Robert Liebman is called Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. And it is about the way in which American democracy has been challenged, has almost collapsed at a number of points in our history. And how sometimes we misremember that history. We think we are uh, more immune or resilient than we are because we miss what are the threats that tend to fracture our system. And, and her argument is that they're all present now. And so this is a conversation about those threats, about this moment, about how policymaking does or doesn't play into it. And I think it's one where there's uh, there's at least some little thread of hope here. And given how many places you're hearing just straight grim pessimism, I, I, I want to call that out. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Suzanne Mettler. Suzanne Mettler, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. So as somebody who studies the threats to democracy right now, have you been thinking about the events and machinations following Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death? Oh, gosh. You know, it's it's really been overwhelming. And if you think about this, you know, in contrast to when there have been previous deaths of Supreme Court justices, this is pretty mind-blowing that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on Friday night and immediately Speaker McConnell came out and said, we're going to move very quickly on this and we're going to be installing a new Supreme Court justice. And so for you know people who who loved Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, you know, she was really an icon to so many people, including a lot of young women. This feels awfully abrupt, right? It highlights so much the very polarized moment that we're at where the two parties are really locked into a kind of existential crisis and where every issue turns into a battle that is uh, like mortal combat where you need to vanquish your enemies. So it's really troubling. And, and I, I think it's very disturbing for this to happen right now when we are only just over you know, a month out from election day and actually people in some states are already voting. So it really heightens the drama in what was already a very dramatic election year. And yet why is anything that is happening weird at all? 
So I want to try to look at American politics here a little bit from the outside. And, and you trace this much more historical story about the threats our system has faced and the many moments of backsliding we've found ourselves in. But if I told somebody from another country who didn't know much about our system that a couple of years ago, you had the legislature or the relevant part of the legislature and the White House controlled by different parties. And so the opposition party refused to give the president an important Supreme Court appointment because they didn't want to see it become a liberal court. Then a couple of years later, they got another vacancy and now they control all of the government and or, I'm sorry, or all of the relevant parts of the government, the Senate and the White House. And they're going to use their power to confirm a justice. I think that person would say, yeah, that that seems like how political systems work. And yet it feels like and is being treated as a crisis. So what's different here? What's changing? Why, why is this not just the normal functioning of a two-party system in, in play? Well, we could talk about first of all, kind of the, you know, the proximate circumstances to this being the death of a Supreme Court justice at a point in time when the Supreme Court's balance and over key issues, every single matter coming before it, the two parties are at odds over these. And so there's the real sense of a crisis that whoever gets appointed here is going to help to to shift that majority more firmly toward one that is going to rule against all sorts of priorities of Democrats on all kinds of issues. So you have that. But then if you zoom out from that, and that's really where my thinking is at these days, is zooming out to the way the political system has been operating. We are at a point in time right now where the kinds of conditions that scholars who study democracies around the world identify as threatening to democracy. We've got four threats looming right now. They're polarization, conflict over who belongs as a member of the political community, rising and high economic inequality, and then finally strong executive power that's become increasingly centralized. And those four threats are very high, and we're already seeing them threaten what I call the pillars of democracy. The pillars of democracy have been eroding in various ways. So now you get this crisis over Supreme Court justice in the midst of all this, and right before a major election, it's making people quite on edge wherever they stand politically. Let me try uh, an, an argument out on you here that relates to something that I'm writing about. I think Mitch McConnell is going to be seen as an incredibly consequential Senate leader because he's going to have presided over and in some ways personified and even catalyzed the move of the Senate from one equilibrium to another, which is to say that for a very long time, the U.S. Senate worked much more on informal norms and courtesies than anything else. Parties had the power to make everything a 60 vote, or actually for much of the Senate's history, um, a two-thirds vote supermajority. Um, and before cloture in 1917, you couldn't break a filibuster at all. Um, so any senator could basically stop anything. And there are all these ways the parties interacted with each other that relied on them not maximizing their power under the official rules. And that includes opposition parties nominating, uh, dealing with the nominations and approving the nominations of presidents of the other party to the Supreme Court. And that what McConnell's been doing across a variety of, of issues for well over a decade now is he's 
saying that era is over, that in this era of high party polarization and a couple of the other uh, forces that you identified, that now the rule of the Senate is you maximize your power under the rules. If you can do it, then you can do it and you do do it. He doesn't cheat. He's not changed something. He's not like refused to abide by a Supreme Court ruling. Um, he just does not abide by informal norms of tolerance and forbearance that help the Senate get along in, in, in other periods. And maybe we should understand that as simply an equilibrium shift that needs to happen. And then in return, Democrats need to come in and get rid of the filibuster and make D.C. and Puerto Rico states, which I think is an overdue reform for reasons of simple justice. And, you know, maybe they they pack the court in response to what McConnell's done with the court over the past couple of years. And we're just in a in a period where the parties are figuring out what powers they actually have. And that's just different and needs to work itself out from sort of the depolarized period that preceded it. What do you think of that? I think, you know, what you're describing is a good description of what has been happening. And it may continue to happen, as you're suggesting, which means that we are in for a long period of political careening, to use a term that one political scientist used, that, you know, things have been incredibly dramatic these last few years. They will continue to be so for a long time to come, no matter who wins the presidency this year. We're in that kind of a state. And, you know, that may be the case. I mean, you're right. The Senate long operated according to rules of deference and mutual respect of senators. And senators would go along with members of the other party on various things like the nominations of Supreme Court justices. I mean, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined the court, I believe she uh, got 96 votes in the Senate, which is just unbelievable to think about that right now where these nominations now come down to really, you know, just the members of one's own party and um, rarely, you know, one or two other votes um, from across the aisle. We've seen a sorting of the public into conservatives becoming Republicans and liberals becoming Democrats, that sort of sorting of ideology and partisanship over the past several decades. One of the the ways in which that has manifested itself is a divide between rural and urban areas of the country and small population states and large population states where Republicans are more likely to dominate in those areas with smaller populations. Well, that helps a party in the Senate. And so, uh, you know, a smaller number of Americans are represented by the Republican senators, given that every state has two senators, whether they are Wyoming or California. So with, you know, wildly different populations. And so I think we are at a point where given the way the parties are organized and and who their constituents are, that there is an imbalance that is growing in the Senate and that is leading to greater and greater antagonism between the parties. And uh, so that uh, any issue becomes one where both sides feel they need to win at all costs because it feels like an existential crisis. There was an analysis released by Nate Silver in 538 just today that found the Senate's lean because of a small state bias you're identifying here towards the Republican Party is six to seven points. So Democrats need to win the overall Senate vote by something like 67 points, which is a landslide to control the Senate. And they need to do that because of the Senate's unusual staggered structure over two or three election cycles to, to take power. 
And that's really striking. I mean, right after Ginsburg died, Ted Cruz released a statement saying that they needed to move fast on replacement. So the Supreme Court would have a full nine uh, justices in the case of a contested election. And I read that and I thought, oh, you see where the legitimacy crisis could come. I mean, can you imagine a contested election in which the deciding vote is cast by this ninth justice that Donald Trump and the Senate Republicans rammed through in defiance of what they did and said they believed in 2016 over Merrick Garland, and just this way in which then minoritarian power continuously can perpetuate itself. You know, uh, the Senate is controlled by a party that represents a minority. They then make sure the Supreme Court is controlled by that party representing the minority, and then the Supreme Court makes sure the presidency is controlled, by, and on and on and on it goes. And I wonder how long American democracy, maybe it shouldn't even be called democracy, the American political system is stable under those conditions. How long do liberals say, that's fine, we're going to put up with a political system that systematically underweights our interests because we had the gall to live in more populous places and states and cities? I, it doesn't seem stable to me. In fact, it seems like a um, recipe for some kind of eventual collapse, crisis, uh, or split. I'm sorry to say this, but I do agree with you. <laughs> and I come to that not just from looking at these circumstances, but from looking at the history of the United States in this book I've just written with Rob Lieberman, Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy, where we look at five earlier periods in American history when people were nervous, they felt that democracy as they knew it at that time, which of course has been something different over time, but they felt that it was going to be subject to backsliding or deterior deterioration rather than remaining stable or becoming more robust. And so there was great fears about instability of the country and also damage to some of the promises of democracy that had been ensured up to that point. And it's happened again and again. In fact, you know, I think we think of American democracy as being something very safe and secure. The Constitution's been around longer than that of any other country in the world. And uh, we think that, you know, even if it wasn't democratic at the outset, that it's become more so over time, that there's been an arc that has been bending toward justice and toward increased democracy. But when you look at this history, what you see is, in fact, if you go back a ways, democracy has been fragile. And there's been time and again that um, people have really been nervous about what could happen. And sometimes there has been real backsliding and damage that has lasted a long time. And, you know, those circumstances happened when one or three of the threats that I mentioned was present. But right now we have for the first time ever, all four of the threats present together in a confluence. So I think it's it's a really dangerous time. I, I want to emphasize something you say about the book, because it's what, when you spend a fair amount of time in a book, you end up uh, absorbing some part of it. And the part that I really absorbed from it, the part that is making me see things a little bit differently, is you do such a good job of showing how contingent the march of American democracy has been. How in many cases it hasn't been a march, it's been a couple steps forward, a couple steps back, but also how in many cases it might have just gone the other way. 
if not for the actions of this one senator or that one president or a couple key leaders from the relevant party, maybe it would have collapsed. And that we've had a bunch of these close calls. And when you think about it like that, when you don't think in terms of some teleological story of America, that maybe there's simply a probability attached to every one of these crises. And we've gotten lucky so far, and we may just not keep being lucky. And as the threats escalate, the four threats, you just have a higher probability of it going really wrong. But I want to focus in on, on one of the precedents you look at, because I think it's the most relevant for today. So can you talk a bit about what happened in the election of 1800? Oh, yes. Wow. So the 1790s are an incredibly dramatic time. Uh, you know, here we are right out of the gate. The ink is barely dry on the Constitution. And right away, polarization escalates. And it escalates initially between political leaders. In fact, some of the same people who, as uh, you know, were among the framers of the Constitution and the founders of the country and who had been uh, at least rhetorically speaking, opposed to political parties, they start to form these factions early on. They're the beginnings of political parties. And they're at each other's throats over policy differences. And the whole decade of the 1790s uh, is full of drama as these tensions are escalating. And the public at large, citizens become polarized as well. So, you know, all of this is escalating. The Federalist faction um, has been in control for the most part during the whole decade. So George Washington is a Federalist, uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, and then John Adams, next president after Washington. And so you get to the election of 1800 and the opposition party, the Republicans, which uh, are led by James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, they really think that if they can't win this time around by 1800, that the country's really going to be turning into a dictatorship of one party rule. And, you know, the Federalists have been making life more and more difficult for them as the decade has gone on, because the Federalists think that having a party that's opposed to what those who are leading government are doing is fundamentally treasonous. They think it's leading to the instability of the whole system. And so they're fighting tooth and nail. It's a situation of mortal combat. So then the election happens and it leads to deadlock and it has to get thrown into the House of Representatives, which is run by the Federalists. So the country waits for about three months and there's all of this fear of violence. Can you just violence. describe that deadlock for a minute? Because oh, it's interesting what yeah, that was. It's a little bit complex. <laughs> um, so at that point in time, when people ran for president, the ballots did not distinguish between which candidates were running for president and which were vice president. So the understanding of those who were Republicans is that Thomas Jefferson was running for president on their ticket and that Aaron Burr was running to be vice president, but that was not distinguished. And in fact, the two of them got more votes than the other candidates, more than Adams and others, but they got equal number of votes to each other. So it wasn't clear which one was going to become the president. And Aaron Burr, for reasons unknown to history, did not stand down. He did not say, well, in fact, the understanding was that, you know, Thomas Jefferson is supposed to be the president. He just didn't say anything. So that meant that the Federalists in the House of Representatives had to decide 
<laughs> so three months go on. And, you know, the, the states were arming themselves. The states with Republican governors were arming themselves. The uh, federal government was moving ammunitions around. So it, it really seemed like everyone was afraid of violence, that violence was going to break out if, you know, people weren't happy that their person had won. Then finally, the House of Representatives meets and they meet for day after day after day and they keep taking a vote and there's not enough votes for any candidate to be declared the winner because things are too deadlocked. And then finally, there's one representative, his his name is James Bayard from Delaware, for, again, some reason unknown to history, he changes his mind and he throws his support to Jefferson and uh, that changes how Delaware stands. And it's done on a state by state basis. All of the, the delegates together in a state make up for one vote and there have to be at least nine for the winning candidate. Like I said, it's kind of complicated. But uh, in any case, at this point, Jefferson has won. And there was not violence, but, you know, there was great fear that there was going to be. And it, you know, it illustrates what you were saying about the contingency, because here is this one person who changes his vote. I mean, the way I like to think of it is instead of it just being a matter of probabilities, that human agency really matters here. The stand that people take makes a big difference in how this whole big American experiment has evolved. What does it say, though, about the U.S. Constitution that we are so often forced to rely on individual politicians acting against maybe their short-term partisan self-interest or even their ideological interests or idea of what would make for a better world in order to preserve democracy? I think we like to think of the Constitution as something that will just keep us safe and keep the country stable and will preserve democracy. And what we learned in writing this book is that that's not the case. I mean, it gives us a framework to go on, but it certainly does not give us the norms that, as you know, many have said, norms seem to be violated. You were saying that a few minutes ago, but it doesn't even protect clearly the rules of the game that are necessary for democracy to work. So, you know, we have a big country with people with lots of different ideas and values and interests. And the only way that we can carry on together without killing each other and with hopefully being able to make decisions on important things that matter for the, the public good, where the public wants there to be some action taken, is that we have to have some rules of the game that we all agree to abide by. And so, but what I mean by these, there's four of them that we call the pillars of democracy. So free and fair elections, the rule of law, the legitimacy of the opposition, and the integrity of rights. Which ones do you think are particularly threatened right now? You know, it's crazy because when we sent the book off to press back in the winter, I had a different answer to that than I do now. When we wrote the book, we were looking at, you know, what had been happening over the last few years. And we thought that there was harm really to all of them except integrity of rights. The damage seemed to be more rhetorical than, than actual damage. But, um, since that point in time, in 2020 has been full of erosion to all four. And I think particularly free and fair elections and the rule of law. So already, 
Um, you know, a few years ago, we had Russian interference in the 2016 elections, and then there was no action really taken to make sure that wouldn't happen again. And uh, we know it's happening again now. And yet the Senate Intelligence Committee is not being briefed on it verbally. And then you had President Trump reaching out to the president of Ukraine, asking for intervention to help him in 2020. And then, you know, just in recent months, we've seen the scaling back of postal services, uh, Trump saying that he's going to call out law enforcement to monitor the elections. All of these things, to my mind, when I hear them, they recall all of these events that happened earlier in history when people were intimidated from voting or um, when, you know, Trump a few weeks ago was telling people to vote twice, you know, and then he took it back, but not really. And, you know, we've had a history of ballot boxes being stuffed, but it had seemed that in the United States over the past half century or more that we've really had free and fair elections that enjoyed legitimacy from Americans across the board, regardless of party. And that now seems to be in peril. What are the 2020 election scenarios that scare you most? Oh, my goodness. I almost stop um, reading about them because (laughs) one seems scarier than the next. There is a, a real concern to me that here we are in the midst of a pandemic. And so a lot of people want to vote by mail to protect their health. But apparently there's a big partisan divide that Democrats mostly want to vote by mail and Republicans plan to vote in person. And to the extent that many states will not count those mail-in ballots until later on, and they might not arrive until later on, there's a possibility that on election night, there'll be, you know, one candidate will look like the winner who days later might no longer look like the winner. If Trump looks like the winner on election night and he starts declaring that he is, and then more ballots are counted and it turns out he's not, from all of the statements he's been making, um, it seems likely that he will say that that's not legitimate and that people will go along with him because he's been now for the past four years really undermining people's confidence in the legitimacy of elections, particularly Republicans' confidence. So I think that's really disturbing. I'll add one thing to that, which is that from what we can tell, mail-in ballots tend to get rejected at higher numbers. And they tend to get rejected at higher numbers, particularly for certain subgroups, younger voters, um, non-white voters. And you can say at times there's a a reasonable explanation for this, that people doing a mail-in ballot can't go up to an election volunteer and ask for help with, you know, how do you sign this? I'm a little bit confused by this part. But I'm getting doing these numbers from memory, but it's something like, I think, 0.1% of in-person ballots are rejected and 1% to 2% of mail-in ballots are rejected. And so that's the other thing I fear. What if you see a very high number of rejections, particularly in states where you have a Republican secretary of state? And so even if the ballots that end up being accepted say one thing, people don't believe that that was a valid ultimate count. I don't think this is 2000 when you have a Democratic Party that is relatively depolarized. They're not that afraid of George W. Bush, right? You have Ralph Nader running and saying it's Tweedledum and Tweedledee or whatever it was. I don't think Democrats want to see Donald Trump get another term. And I don't think if they don't think the election was fair, they're going to be um, comfortable with it. It doesn't doesn't seem to me that the 
possibility of a truly illegitimate election is all that low. I mean, I wouldn't put it much below 10%, and I might put it higher. And then what? It's going to get thrown to Congress? It's going to get thrown to the Supreme Court with a new Trump appointee? I feel like people think this doesn't happen in America. What your book shows is it often has happened or come very close to happening in America. Um, And right now, the conditions are there for it to really explode. Now, maybe Joe Biden wins Florida on election night and it's kind of over, but it seems well within the realm of possibility that we're going to have a crisis. It does. Yeah. I mean, I, I really hope that on election night, the answer is very clear and, uh, you know, it will really help the country if that's the case. But I, I worry that it's not. And I think, you know, mail-in ballots can be, as you say, they can be confusing for people. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of directions and you don't have someone there to ask. And so um, th- there are many, many ways in which something can go wrong in this election. Um, and I, I do worry because I see it through these lenses of earlier elections when things really went awry. When you talk about the four threats to American democracy, one way of saying it is that we have these independent forces in American politics that have that are rising up and are cracking the system um, or threatening the system. And another way of looking at it is that you have a Republican Party, which has become the vehicle of these forces. So if you look at, I'd say, three of your four, polarization, racial exclusion, and economic inequality, in their most toxic forms are currently represented by the by the GOP, much more so than by the Democratic Party. I mean, the Democratic Party nominates Joe Biden for president, and the Republican Party is Donald Trump. And I think that tells you a lot about polarization. Um, do we have an American political system problem, or do we have a Republican Party problem? And is there even a difference between the two? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And we, as we wrote the book, we kind of kept that question on the back burner as we wrote. We did not, you know, from the outset think the Republican Party is the problem. But as we assessed each of the four threats, you're right that we found that in the contemporary period, if you look at political polarization, you know, it's certainly polarization as a dynamic. And there are ways in which both parties have um, led uh, to its escalation. And, you know, it, its early origins start from a sorting of, of citizens into, as I was saying, like these different ideological camps. But then I would say that it has been Republican leaders who have taken much more initiative to drive their party in a way that um, has been polarizing. And, uh, and so we, you know, we, we put a little bit more of the blame there on Republicans. When it comes to what we call the conflict over who belongs, who's a member of society, what their status is, this is a kind of conflict where it's happened again and again in American history and very often involving conflict over race, specifically the status of blacks. And, you know, it goes back to, of course, the country's origins and what some scholars of comparative politics call a formative rift in the country's origins, which can be a problem again and again. And so with the status of African-Americans. Now, this becomes a threat to democracy and can lead to, to democratic stability at this ironic moment where there's also the possibility that democracy becomes stronger and more robust because it happens when conflict over race, which we've had throughout American history. But at certain moments, it becomes organized along the lines of the party system, where one party is saying, 
our way of life is under threat. Our heritage is un- is under threat. And the other party is saying, we want greater equality in this country. We want to expand the promises of the Declaration of Independence, that all are created equal. You know, at other points, you still have racial inequality, but the conflict over it is suppressed. But right now, what we're seeing is that um, just as was the case in the 1850s and the 1890s, today, there's conflict over it that's divided along the lines of the party system. And then rising economic inequality, you know, here again, it has been particularly the Republican Party that has been, you know, working for tax cuts to the affluent, deregulation. You could, you know, around the edges say that there are some ways in which the modern Democratic Party has done some things that help some businesses and the affluent, but it's um, the Republican Party has done more. The executive aggrandizement, the fourth threat, is the one that has really been engaged in pretty equally by both parties since the 1930s, since FDR was president. But what I would point out is that when the Republican Party gets the White House now in the contemporary period, they are using it to advance those goals of undermining efforts for greater racial equality and other kinds of equality. And they're they're using their power to do the bidding of the affluent. And so um, the parties do very different things with that executive power. I want to pick up on something you said in there, which is that the irony of the American political system and, and American political history is that it's these moments of democratic crisis that often lead to the strengthening of democracy. You don't have to, right? It's a it's a moment of risk, but but there is some opportunity in that. And I wonder about that here. I mean, if you had asked me what's going on a couple of years ago, I would tell you the Senate is broken because of the filibuster that we have a system where the White House and the Senate and the House and the Supreme Court are quite often all or three of the four are occupied by the party that won fewer votes. That we were in a real democratic crisis that people were not paying attention to, that things felt stable enough to people that they're that they they, they didn't want to rock the boat too much. And something I see right now, I've been talking to Democratic senators over the past couple of days, and what McConnell is doing here with Ginsburg, um, given what he did with Garland. It has taken Democrats in the center of the caucus and people who would always push back on me when I said it was time to abolish the filibuster and move them to that position. Uh, one of them told me that really ra- things that were radical a couple of years ago are becoming the mainstream position now. And maybe this is necessary, right? I, I, I sometimes wonder about this. It may be this set of confrontations we're having with our original rifts with what are the actual failings and inequities of our constitutional system, with how does the system we talk about in terms of values like democracy and equality actually play out in in daily life. And that's a moment of danger, but maybe there's no real way around it, that you are not going to get through this without a confrontation. And that in that way, you know, McConnell is playing some kind of historical role that he needs to play by making clear what his side of the system really looks like and how he's going to try to run it. And so taking away the fig leaves of mythology and legend and high rhetoric that sometimes protect people from seeing what's really going on here and what confrontations really need to be had. Yes. Well, I think all of that is is really well said. As Rob and I, Rob Lieberman and I wrote this book, 
we kept thinking, okay, we're going to learn some positive lessons about how did people in the past get out of these crises and save democracy. And the more we studied the past periods, we thought we are not really seeing positive lessons. One exception to that I could talk about later is is Watergate. But for the earlier four periods, what was extremely disturbing to us was we began to realize that there was a settlement that came out of each period. And the settlement had to do with restoring racial hierarchy or even just never even um, acknowledging a conflict around it and building on top of it, which is what happened in the 1790s and the 1930s. But uh, in those other periods, there was finally some restoration of racial hierarchy, and that was the settlement. And so the question is, can now be different? And, you know, I think one of the reasons why we're very polarized, and this was striking to me to learn, is that the way the party systems have sorted themselves out now. So the country as a whole has become much more diverse in the past few decades. And the Democratic Party, in terms of its demographics, pretty well reflects that diversity in terms of who affiliates with the Democratic Party among ordinary citizens. But the Republican Party has not changed very much. And so it's now a very white party relative to the population. On top of that, when you look at people's attitudes, Democrats versus Republicans, they have really moved apart from each other. So political scientists use these measures called racial resentment to look at people's attitudes. And over the past couple of decades, Republicans have become I have, have been scoring higher on racial resentment, which means that they're more likely to blame African Americans for persistent inequality rather than to say there's something wrong more at a systemic level that's causing inequality to be perpetuated. By contrast, Democrats have really shifted, particularly since around 2012, to um, believe more strongly that there are systemic sources of racism and that major change is necessary for citizenship to be equal regardless of race. Have you followed the debate in political science over whether the racial resentment measures are picking up on simple, like a more normal kind of economic conservatism and, and conservatism about what drives life chances? I know Ryan Enos at Harvard and some others have have sort of argued that racial resentment uh, measures are not precise enough to show what people put on them. And I'm curious if you if you followed that and have a view on it. You know, um, this is really not my bailiwick. I did read some of the articles associated with that and talk to various scholars of political behavior while we were writing the book and came to the conclusion that for what we are talking about, that these measures are useful and appropriate and not a concern. So where that leads me is to say that there is greater, um, right now we are at a time of both peril and promise, which is really what makes the stakes so high. And I feel even more this way um, out of coming out of this summer and the protests, which became so widespread after the death of of uh, George Floyd, that, you know, there were people in small towns and small cities all over the country, not just in big cities, who were protesting. And it included, you know, a lot of white people, far more so than in the civil rights era. And then we saw these shifts in public opinion, where more people than ever seemed to be concerned about 
not only police violence, but racism and racial inequality. So that suggests to me that we're at this moment of promise where possibly we could come out of this crisis of democracy, making society more equal. But it's also very possible that things could go the other way. Yezra Klanjo will be back after a short break. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Hear Judd Apatow talk about his experience making iconic films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. Watch Hacks actress Hannah Einbinder's stand-up special. Experience films that make you laugh out loud with fan-favorite comedians like Group Therapy, where Neil Patrick Harris, Nicole Byer, Tig Notaro, and more hilariously detail their experiences with mental health. Outstanding, A Comedy Revolution, a film investigating the impact of queer comedians with Lily Tomlin, Rosie O'Donnell, and Bob the Drag Queen, and Sacramento, a lighthearted narrative comedy with Michael Sarah and Kristen Stewart, and much, much more. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. I'm going to make a bit of a pivot in the conversation here and draw a connection to some of your previous work that I'm curious if you if you buy into. But I've been a longtime fan of the Suzanne Mettler School of Political Science, um, and, and I'm a big fan of your books of the submerged state and the citizen government or government citizen disconnect. And you've written a lot about how the American public often doesn't know the government policies it is using and benefiting from, um, how much of it, particularly when it is helping middle class or, or upper middle class people or richer people, we make those policies invisible while we make the policies that uh, help poor people very visible and in some cases quite humiliating to use, and how that has very strange feedback loop incentives uh, across the system. And so I want to dive into some of that, but but as a way of drawing this connection, I'm curious if you think any of the threats that American democracy is facing reflect this, if any of the polarization or the ratcheting up of symbolic or exclusionary um, fights in American politics reflect the public no longer believing the government really delivers for them, no longer feeling government is federal government is responsive, which I think would be the correct way to feel given how American politics now works. And as such, um, other issues coming to take the fore, such as actually leading, making a more democratically responsive government. Is that an answer to any of this or is that simply orthogonal, maybe good for its own reasons, but not going to not going to fix any of the threats to the system? I'm really glad you raised that. And I, I do think that there is a relationship there. Uh, so, you know, it's very striking. If we go back to the middle of the 20th century, say the 1950s, 60s, vast majorities of Americans of both parties would say that they trusted the federal government in Washington to do what was right most or all of the time. Um, they reported high levels of confidence that elected officials were responsive to people like them and that uh, that they could make a difference in the political system. Um, political scientists call this political efficacy. And then all of those kinds of measures began to fall. And now it's only, you know, it's less than one in five Americans who will report a positive attitude on these kind of things. And I saw that as very much a crucial condition that led to the election of President Trump. 
many people who were particularly enthusiastic about him in uh, 2015 and 2016 um, were people who reported low levels of confidence that elected officials cared about people like them. And people seemed to feel that government had gone so far off the rails in terms of being responsive to them that it was worth taking a risk, a risk with someone who didn't have experience in, in government. And so I think it's a background condition that lack of confidence in government and real anti-government attitudes that have led us to where we are today. So tell me a bit about what this strain of research finds. Um, What is, just flatly, what is the government-citizen disconnect? It is an an incredible paradox. So um, you have the conditions I just mentioned that, that people don't feel that they can trust government or that it's there for them. But at the very same time that the trend lines for this were, um, you know, becoming worse and worse, Americans were actually obtaining more and more from government social benefits. And um, I'm not referring here to policies for poor people very much, because some of those policies were really flatlined for pretty long periods of time in in recent decades. But if you look at, you know, the whole combination of all of the policies of what we call social provision, both visible policies like the ones people think of, like food stamps, for example, and Medicaid and Medicare and Social Security policies that have a lot of the latter being policies that have a lot of middle income and and high income recipients with the policies that I call part of the submerged state. So policies that are hidden in the tax code, but they actually function just the same. They're social benefits, policies like the non-taxable status of employer-provided health and retirement benefits, or the home mortgage interest deduction, and as well the earned income tax credit, which is uh, different from those others I've mentioned, mostly for low-income, it's for low-income people. But those policies, people receive, um, you know, now quite a high percentage of their income relative to the past from those. So like in 1969, only um, 7% of the average person's income came from these social policies. By 2014, it was 17%. The average American I found in a survey I did has in their lifetime to date received five policies. And um, three of them have been the type that I call submerged. And two of them are are visible. And this cuts across all groups by, you know, party, age group, and so on. So, you know, I think most Americans who are who are more affluent don't think of themselves as beneficiaries of social policies. But in fact, we're all in this together. We all receive these benefits. But so that's the paradox is that there's this big disconnect from government. But in fact, government has been doing more over time for people. Let me ask you about the most common objection I would hear from people more on the right when I wrote about uh, submerged state ideas, which is that there's a category error being made here, that it is not the same thing to have me pay for health insurance that somebody else gets as to let me keep more of the money I make back from government taxation so that I can buy a home or 
you know, pay for health insurance um, myself as an employee or whatever it might be. That there's that the, the two kinds of policies being um, described here are just different. That maybe Social Security is similar to something like Medicaid, but the home mortgage interest deduction is not similar to something like Medicaid. How do you how do you think about that? I think that's an off-base way to think about it for a couple of reasons. For one thing, we think of these policies as being costless to government, as if it's just, you know, me keeping more of the money I make. But in fact, government subsidizes these policies. I mean, some of them are outright paid by government, such as um, the earned income tax credit for many people who actually don't have tax liability. And so, you know, they're getting benefits out of that. But also the um, employer-provided benefits are also, you know, subsidized by government. For example, I mean, the way this actually works is that, and this was all settled during, uh, it it came about during World War II when, there was the idea that that companies were not going to pay, give people raises. So unions, since they weren't getting raises in their paychecks, then argued for a different kind of benefits. And it was the the beginnings of these employer-provided benefits, or not the beginning, the continuation of them. But the agreement that was made was that those dollars would not be taxed. So if you had that same money put into your paycheck, it would be taxed, but being put into your benefits, it's not taxed. So, you know, by not knowing the history of this, we we really forget a lot about how it works. Um, But then I also, you know, more broadly, I object to the objection in that, um, you know, it just, it's based on a very individualistic model of society that suggests that um, every dollar I earn is mine, rather than understanding that we all have mutual obligations to one another as a society. And, you know, I'm able to obtain the income I do because I was able to go to public schools that were you know, paid for by other Americans. And I was able to go to a college um, and, you know, receiving some some benefits along the way that helped me to be there, et cetera. And so, you know, I see us as, as much more um, enmeshed in a, a web of obligations to one another. So it's a fundamentally different way of looking at things. So in the government citizen disconnect, you use Kentucky as a case study for the different dynamics flowing through this issue and through this paradox. And of course, Kentucky is represented by one Senator Mitch McConnell. So tell me a little bit about Kentucky. What makes them interesting from this perspective and and, and how does their relationship to to government programs, given who their uh, senior senator is, speak to the weirdness of American politics? Yeah, Kentucky really epitomizes the paradox, I would say. So if you go back to the 1970s, um, they were electing Democrats to go to Washington, to the House of Representatives um, and the Senate. And uh, some of them worked for very progressive social policies. And this is like up into the 1980s. You had someone like uh, Carl Perkins, who um, advanced, you know, the 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 Perkins higher ed policies that we uh, that have really helped a lot of low to middle income people go to college, um, and this began to shift in the 1980s and the early 1990s, where the um, delegation from Kentucky to the U.S. House of Representatives shifted from being moderate 
Democrats to being moderate Republicans. And then after that, they move increasingly in a more conservative direction so that then uh, we get some, you know, very conservative members of the House in the 2000s and right down to today um, from Kentucky. But at the same time, in Kentucky, uh, the social transfers to the average person increased dramatically from being about 10% of the average person's income in 1970 up to 23% in 2015. And it's much higher in some counties in Kentucky. And many of those counties are in districts that elect some of these particularly conservative members of Congress who want to, you know, make a food stamp eligibility contingent on work and, and so on. So that's, that's the paradox. When I opened that book, I thought the finding, the primary finding was going to be that the visibility of programs really matters. And that's a finding, but but you find that it only explains so much and that in fact, it is your view of welfare that ends up being your proxy for your views of government and views of welfare incredibly racialized. So what is the role that race is playing in the relationship that uh, American citizens, but I think particularly white citizens have towards bigger and more activist government. Yeah, you know, you're right. As as I started that book, I thought I would come to the same conclusion and it shifted along the way. I was surprised at how even people who had received many visible policies still had pretty negative attitudes about government. And so I had to dig deeper to find out what was going on here. And what again and again in every analysis I did, all of these statistical analyses, I kept finding that attitudes about welfare were very important. And uh, so then I, you know, dug into that, looked at that, and it resonated with what we had heard in our interviews from people as well. We, um, so people, I think that, that many people, not all, but there's a chunk of Americans who see welfare, whatever that means to them. And it tends to be a pejorative term. If you say aid to the poor, people will report different things, but they think of welfare as a microcosm of government. And they think of welfare as providing benefits to people who have not worked hard for them as they themselves have. So they they think of them as being for people who are undeserving. And then they think that that's in general what government does. They think of themselves as hardworking taxpayers who do what they're supposed to do. And that because of their sacrifices, working and paying taxes, that other people are able to be irresponsible and are being paid for through their sacrifices. It's in part driven by race and, you know, people who are white are particularly likely to have those attitudes, but it's it's also a class attitude. It's very much middle income people who have those attitudes, not lower income people or more affluent people, interestingly. And so I think that this is very telling about our contemporary politics, that there is a very strong view that that's what government does. And somehow all of these other things, which government has continued to do in many ways quite successfully, it's not getting credit for because what people are thinking about when they think of government is these things they don't like. How much is the key distinction here, the degree of symbolic or abstract relationship to the policy? Most people aren't on welfare versus the degree to which people see a policy operating in in their life. And this would also maybe go for the difference between a policy being debated by Congress, like the Affordable Care Act in 2009 and 2010, 
versus a policy that is now on the ground being implemented uh, across a pretty wide cross-section of people. Um, you've done some interesting work, particularly on the Affordable Care Act and the way views have changed on that. And, you know, it's not an entirely like hopeful story, but it really is something where there's been a very different politics of that once it was something real than when it was simply a legislative abstraction. And I'd be curious what lessons you think can be drawn from that experience. Yeah, you know, you're so right. I do think that um, there are issues in politics that seem easy to people. We call these balance issues where you're either, you know, for or against. And I think that welfare kind of falls into that category. So people hear that term and they just think I'm against that. But the Affordable Care Act has actually, you know, it's quite fascinating after, you know, Republicans ran against it for all of those years from 2010 right up through 2016. And then all of a sudden, once people were faced with the idea that they might lose the benefits that they were gaining or their family members might or people in their community, public opinion actually shifted toward becoming more supportive of it and um, has continued to be so. But, you know, that's a more subtle kind of issue. It's a complex issue. The Affordable Care Act has all sorts of different components to it. It's not as easily identified. You know, policy quickly gets complicated and down in the weeds, whereas uh, an issue that, you know, you can just mention with one word that people will quickly react to makes it uh, seem like a more simple matter. And so- I had this debate uh, on the podcast very recently with David French, the the conservative writer, and something we were going back and forth on is that his view is that in a polarized, centralized country, you want to move towards a lot of federalism, a lot of letting regions go their own way, um, and a much weaker federal government because to do big things and particularly allow Congress to ricochet back and forth, you know, Democrats come in, they pass universal health care, and Republicans come in and they repeal it. It's just going to tear the country apart. And, and and my view is sort of the opposite, that it's a reasonable feedback loop for parties to come in, govern ambitiously on the agenda they promise the country, and then for the American people to judge that agenda. And then the next party can come in and either repeal it if they have the, the votes to do so and get judged on that or fail to repeal it, as happened with the Obamacare, because it, it, it's become maybe too popular to do so. And that it would actually be okay to have a lot more policy action happening, even if it was somewhat unstable in its early years, because the public really does end up weighing in once they can see what a policy is or isn't. Um, where do you fall on that? Um, how, how should we think about responsiveness amidst the four threats, but also amidst what you found about the ways in which attitudes towards policies change once they're being implemented? Yeah, this is a great set of questions. And, you know, political scientists generally have found that on some of these big issues that majorities of Americans really care about, Congress has not been very responsive for the past many years. You know, there used to be more the thought that Congress was responsive to the median voter, but now that that seems to be less and less the case. And so with the Affordable Care Act, Congress actually was responsive to the median voter. And, it, you know, it was a big push. And for Democrats, it represented, you know, what had been at least a 60-year struggle to have benefits for working-age Americans, health benefits. And so that finally gets enacted against great struggle, but it's the exception to the rule because so many other issues Congress has been unable to work on. It takes me back to one of the things we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, and that is the structure of the Senate and the filibuster. 
And I think about this a lot. Um, so the Senate got rid of the filibuster with respect to Supreme Court nominations, but not for regular legislation. Um, what would happen if we did get rid of it? It would likely make for, on the one hand, a more unstable politics because, you know, the Affordable Care Act would get enacted and then it actually could be terminated, you know, once the other party wins. So it could be unstable in that way. On the other hand, and this kind of gets more to the heart of your question, it could be better in terms of accountability to the American public, because I think it's very difficult right now for Americans to see why it is that, you know, they go to the polls and maybe the people they vote for get elected, but then not much seems to change. And they don't follow the fact that, well, there weren't 60 votes for cloture um, in order to bring something to the floor in the Senate. And, you know, so many proposals die in the U.S. Senate because of those restrictions. And so, you know, that is the question. If we got rid of the filibuster, we might have more responsiveness, but we might have better accountability. And it might be clearer to citizens how government operates and what it actually does for them and who to hold accountable. And let me just ask you about the the counterargument to this directly, which I think attends this question with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, you know, what if after um, a filled seat, Democrats move towards court packing or, or otherwise changing the structure of the, the Senate and, and, and democracy maybe itself, uh, attends this question of the filibuster, which is given the threats that you identify and given the volatile moment we're in, a cycle of escalation can just be dangerous. I was talking to Dana Ziblatt at Harvard, who studies uh, how democracies fail, and he he was making this point that on the one hand he's like emotionally for court packing as an answer if if this happens, and on the other hand, and and understands that you can't be a party that just gets sucker punched again and again and again. And on the other hand, there are a lot history and comparative politics is littered with examples of parties that ended up in escalatory feedback loops and ended up breaking their political system. So somebody needs to be able to exercise restraint. I mean, how do you think about the dangers here? Is Are we just sort of, is there a thing to do to rush towards a new equilibrium and, and, and people need to sort of show they're willing to fight in order for a reasonable settlement to be reached? Or does somebody need to exercise restraint and, and, and forbearance, even at the cost of issues that are dear to them and, and, and to the people who vote for them uh, and, and will have enormous consequence in their lives? I mean, what level of, risk aversion should we have in this moment? Well, you know, uh, that is that that's the key question. And I think it's going to become a more and more urgent question in the months ahead and maybe the years ahead. So I understand both sides of what Daniel Ziblatt is, is saying there. And for him, it rests very much on this question of norms. But what I actually think we need to be trying to strengthen are what I call these pillars of democracy or the rules of the game that both sides need to acknowledge that if we're going to continue on here uh, together and avoid violence, we need to, to really abide by the rules of the game. This, you know, free and fair elections, rule of law, legitimacy, the opposition and integrity of rights. And for Americans today, we've had for, you know, the, the whole latter part of the 20th century, we didn't have to worry about these things because they were a given and they were accepted by both sides. And we really didn't have to think about democratic backsliding or instability to any great extent. And now we do, we are in that place. And so 
we really need to to reaffirm them. And, you know, in most public opinion polls where people are asked about these things, both Democrats and Republicans will say they agree with them. The question is, when push comes to shove, if it's your party and and your policy goals that you care dearly about could be advanced if we do away with these rules of the game, you know, will you still stand by them? That is the question. When you look at the history of this, on some level, changing the rules of how the Senate works, of how the political system works, of, of what states are around, this is a long-running thing in American history. People present it as some kind of Armageddon option or radical change, but we've changed how everything from the filibuster to how senators are elected to which states are included. I mean, Dakota was broken into North and South um, for purely partisan reasons many times and come through that. And on the other hand, obviously, you need some level of stability. So when you, when you talk about rules and, and, and formal structures in which people can exercise power, do you think that the history of the country suggests that that is done in a genteel bipartisan way or that what happens is we go through these periods of disequilibrium and the two sides kind of trade back and forth alterations as they gain or lose power and then eventually you come back into some kind of stability once you find a match between the system and the context of the country at that time? Well, these are, are great questions, big questions. Now, you know, some of these things that you're including are not you know, they're not part of my definition of the basic aspects of, you know, rule of law, for example. So the number of justices that we have on the Supreme Court, it's it's changed over time. And there are, you know, other different scholars than me who are experts on when and how that's happened. It's just, it's been so stable for such a very long time that we tend to think that it's in the Constitution that there are nine justices on the Supreme Court, but that's not the case. And, you know, we've also thought of the Senate as very fixed for a long time as being, um, you know, 100 senators. But in fact, you know, the whole story of the 19th century is, you know, more and more states being added to the union. And so, you know, the number of senators is changing over time. And that has all sorts of implications for the politics that come out of the Senate. And so there's certainly talk of that now. And I think that's, you know, that does not violate the basic principle of the rule of law. I think it's a good place to come to a close. Let me ask you what's always our final question, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you and you would recommend to the audience? Ah, that's a really nice question. I'm going to mention three books by political scientists. So one of them, it, it's kind of related to what we've talked about with the government-citizen disconnect um, by uh, Amy Lerman. It's called Good Enough for Government Work, The Public Reputation Crisis in America and What We Can Do to Fix It. And uh, she really um, uses some very interesting approaches to get at citizens' lack of faith in and, and confidence in public solutions to um, to problems and in government generally. Um, and then also looking at, at Americans' responses to public policies and through, um, in a different way, uh, my colleague at Cornell, Jamila Michener's book, Fragmented Democracy, Medicaid, Federalism, and Unequal Politics, um, is a, a terrific book that looks at how what state you live in matters for your experience of public policy, and it affects how much you participate in politics and exercise your voice. And it really casts a bright light on on low-income people and particularly minorities who, um, who especially rely on 
on Medicaid. And then finally, a book that is really pertinent to the crises we've been talking about, and that's Nathan Calmo's new book, With Ballots and Bullets, Partisanship and Violence in the American Civil War. It shows how a polarized party system can really lead to great violence and actually civil war. And I think it presents themes we should be thinking carefully about in this really troubling time. Suzanne Mettler, your book is Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. Thank you so much. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Ezra. Thank you to Suzanne Mettler for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Gell for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.